Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. Tug at a single thread in nature and you will find it connected to the rest of the universe. John Moore. You're listening to episode 259, Restore Your Health and Hope with Dr. Aaron Hartman. The statistics I use that I think, you know, everybody can relate with, you know, I'm not familiar with that stat. Um, that is an interesting one, but um, that is from the University of Florida. Half of all chronic disease in our country can be directly attributed to eating processed foods. So wow. half, of, half of all chronic disease could potentially go away. And then from Walter Willett, the Harvard School of Public Health, and he's, you know, some say he's the top epidemiologist in the country, that 80% of heart disease and 70% of cancer can be prevented by diet and lifestyle alone. This is the Dance of Life. My name is Tudor Alexander, and we are going to go on a journey to hack your mind, body, and soul for living your best life yet. Tune in every week to learn something new, grow, and get inspired as we discover the secrets of success and practice the art of fulfillment. And if it's one thing I hope you learn from today, it's that your life is a dance. And just like any dance, you can learn to dance it well. What's up? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Hope you're having a happy and healthy Friday, wherever you happen to be listening to this. Thanks so much for being here. As always, so grateful to have you on the show and so excited to be able to share another awesome guest with you. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Hartman. He's a board-certified family medicine practitioner and clinical researcher who advocates for and practices functional medicine, which is an integrative approach to conventional and alternative medicine. Dr. Aaron also guides individuals to restore their health and hope using science-backed solutions so they can live the vibrant life they were made for. He's also one of the founders of Richmond Functional Medicine, And if you want to get in touch with him and get a free gift, it's a Be Resilient Guide. You can download this guide on the link that I'll post for the show notes because it's a little bit longer, so it's kind of hard to say it out loud. But you can go check the show notes for this episode. It's episode 259. You can always go to danceoflife.com slash podcast and sign up for regular updates there or download the show notes. But the link for this free gift, the Be Resilient Guide, How to Be More Resilient, Uh, will be posted on the show notes for that. Excited to have Dr. Aaron on the show today. We're going to be chatting about his own health journey and how he started uh, by healing his daughter and kind of how that catalyzed his own experience and journey, as well as, you know, what are some ways that you can work preventatively in your own health? What does functional medicine mean? What can it do for you? And what are some strategies to handle common problems like inflammation, digestive issues, and so on? I love talking about health, so you know I always love it when I get somebody who's experienced on the show. We can chat about these things because they're so, so important. You know, your health is the currency for everything else in life. Just about to jump into this, but really quick, make sure you subscribe, share, leave a review, like, emoji, whatever you feel like doing. Blow a kiss, that's fine too. Here we go. Let's do this. Episode 259, Restore Your Health and Hope with Dr. Aaron Hartman.
All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you, you know, especially with your experience and especially your story too. I love your story about your daughter. So you can maybe share that as well. But uh, thanks for being on the show. I think medicine and, and health is always a priority. I always try to bring uh, people such as yourself on the show with a lot of experience to talk about important things in health. So very excited. Welcome. Thanks a lot. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here. Just really excited to share some information and just to um, um, enjoy our conversation. I always enjoy doing these. It's always cool to learn about other people. Yeah. And, um, yeah it's, it's, it's like we're having a conversation and, and other people are listening in, which is kind of cool. You know, I like, I like teaching and educating. So this is kind of, kind of um, a, sweet, a sweet spot for me. Yeah, same. You know, I always uh, say that no matter what, I will always love teaching. I could teach somebody to to build a fort or it could, you know, teach them how to be better in their health or whatever else. As long as I'm teaching, uh, I'm happy. And I think we find ourselves in the service of others. So it's it's really cool. And especially podcasting now, it's so interesting because it's, uh, you know, it's just basically you're listening in on someone else's conversation, but it's such a good way to learn because we, we're, we're sort of trained through that storytelling and, and yeah. fireside chat type of thing in our evolution. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, I'm curious, um, you know, when you get started basically with your own journey, I'm really curious for you to share your experience with your daughter and how that kind of transformed your life and got you sort of on the path or adjusted the path that you're on today. So you want to share about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, my, um, my wife is a pediatric occupational therapist who, um, works with kids with special needs. So her caseload was all these really complicated kids with lots of, lots of health issues. And so, um, you know, after about two years, one of those kids was losing their home. And so she was like, Hey, would you mind, you know, would you want to, you know, bring this little girl in her house, become a foster home and me being, you know, a typical guy, I was like, Oh, we can always give her back, you know? So I was like, sure. Why not? You know, you know, no harm, no foul. Right. And then, uh, a year later we were working on adopting Anna, who's uh, my daughter. And um, just that journey of taking someone who was homeless and helpless and had no advocates for her and then all of a sudden like falling in love with her and then um, running into a doctor and the doctor, and I'm a physician, the doctor was like, we need to put a, a little hole in her stomach and put a plastic tube to pour formula in there because she's too small for her age. Wow. And um, for, yeah, unfortunately, um, my wife and I just didn't feel right. It just didn't resonate, right? Yeah. And we're talking to the expert. This is the person who knows. If anybody knows, it's this person from the University of Florida, just expert pediatric gastroenterologist. Um, it just didn't feel right. And so we um, we kindly opted out. It was, you know, got reported to Child Protective Services because of that, which was kind what? of, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's another story. story at all. It was it was a quick resolution. The person, who, the caseworker who came out and checked us out um, actually knew my wife because my wife was actually in the system working with kids. So it was like the person who came out to check us out was someone my wife actually knew because they shared patients, right? So wow. it, it disappeared pretty quickly, but it just kind of opened our eyes to what regular people with kids with special needs go through all the time and they don't know how to navigate the system. They don't have yeah. anybody advocating for them. And so um, six months later, my wife found a growth chart for kids with um, cerebral palsy, which is um, the main diagnosis that um, has been given to my daughter. And um, she was right in the middle. She was absolutely normal. And so it was just like, whoa, like, wow. And so a similar thing happened a year later with um, an eye doctor recommending eye surgery. And that's kind of what started my path, you know, off of the traditional medicine you know, road. Like, you know, maybe the experts don't know. Yeah. Maybe, I need, maybe I need to be my best advocate for my daughter, use my ex expertise. Maybe I need to become the expert for her, you know, which is what a lot of, a lot of people, when they kind of get frustrated with the healthcare system, they have to become their own 
advocates and experts. And so that kind of led us down this path that um, over the next seven to 10 years led me into integrative medicine and then the functional medicine and then ultimately to um, start a practice that deals with people with complex cases. Um, and also, you know, people that don't, everybody doesn't have to have a complex case, you know, I have executives and, you know, people with, you know, ultimate athletes and things like that. But it's a lot of people who just have not been able to get um, their health needs met by our, our healthcare system. That's, that's awesome, Manuel. I think that uh, having some of those situations, obviously it's, it's very difficult situations, but they can be sort of the seeds for so many wonderful things in our lives, you know, and, and now you're helping other people through, through that change in perspective. And I completely agree with you. I think the healthcare system as it is today, it's so broken. I was just talking to somebody <laughs> the other day, one of my friends, and I was like, I don't know how we got on the topic, but she's like, yo, you don't have insurance. I'm like, no, I don't have insurance. I mean, mm. you know, I buy my supplements and do what I need to do every month. I've so far stayed out of the doctor's office, but um, you know, obviously, you know, you can always get injured, but I don't have insurance. I mean, you know, I did, the cheapest insurance for my, you know, demographic age, whatever. I mean, I don't have any serious concerns, but it's still like fucking $500. And then, you know, it's like a $9,000 deductible, which basically means, you're paying $500 for a what if situation. And then you have to keep paying until they actually decide to help you out. I mean, it's totally bonkers to me. And it's just, there's no, you know, even my parents who they're uh, on Medicare now, they're pretty much retired. I mean, it's just, it's so sad. I, I hear my mom getting in arguments all the time over the phone with, uh, you know, just these people with her diabetes medications, they don't want to pay for it anymore. And, you know, it's just, it's just sad, you know, it really saddens me because I think health is such a critical part of our lives. And yet, um, you know, I think there's definitely need for a lot of need for transformation in that area. Yeah. I mean, the system, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard. How do we, how do we, um, how do we, how do we say the conversation? How do we talk about, it? you know, is it the system's broken? Is it, we expect too much out of the system we have, you know, I always kind of struggle with how do I, how do I gate, how do I, shape the conversation because there's the systems broken part of it. And there's also the part that we're, maybe we're expecting stuff out of the system wasn't designed for. Yeah, you know, It was designed as a acute care system. You get a kidney infection, you go to the hospital, you get antibiotics, you get appendicitis, your appendix gets removed. You know, we're not, that's what I used the healthcare system for when I was a kid. You know, I got tonsillitis, went to the doctor, got a shot. It was $5 for the appointment. You know, the shot was like $8. We we're out for less than 10 bucks. You know, it was like, you know, it was a long time ago that I was, you know, I'm 48 this year. And, um, but how to go from that to, I you can't leave a doctor's office for, you know, less than, you know, $200. And it's like, it's, it's the, the chronic care aspect that our system wasn't designed for the system we're in now is the same system that our grandparents used, mm. you know, when the most common cause of death was an infectious disease, you know, and now it's cancer and heart disease, these chronic illnesses. And it's maybe it's re, 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 gauging our way we're thinking about it's not the system is broken it's i'm not saying it's not broken because it is broken but like it's just it wasn't designed for a chronic yeah. illness and so how do we jump off the ship and say how do we either outside the system or change the system so that it, it pays for thought you know one of the issues with functional medicine is it's cognitive heavy you know it takes me two hours to um talk to a patient you know yeah um, Insurance does not pay for that. You know, the analogy I give people was when I, um, we used to do hospital, I did hospital work for um, about, about 14, 15 years. And um, towards the end of it, I'd go across the street, I'd um, go to the ICU, have a patient in the ICU, talk with the intensivist, talk with the cardiologist. I'd get, you know, four or five phone calls over the night, that afternoon. 
um, probably spend you know, two hours of time overall every day. Insurance gave me $82 for that. Wow. Like this past weekend, I have to have the plumbing guy come out here because our septic was backed up. We were on a farm out in the country and he was getting $150 an hour, you know, wow. um, which oh, is good, good, good money. <laughs> good for him. I mean, I'm like, congratulations. Like, man, that's, but it's like, you know, why was my intensive care with this patient valued at, you know, about $40 an hour. But if I, you come to my office and I biopsy a little mole on you, I get $180 for that. It's mm. just the, the system pays for procedures and um, specialty care. Yeah. And when, you, when the system's set up to pay for procedures and specialty care, what we get a lot of are procedures and specialty care, you mm. know? And so what that means is 75% of the, the physicians in our country are specialists compared to Europe where 75% of physicians there are generalists. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So it's exact. Yeah. It's just the ratios are almost the exact opposite. So it's kind of like we, we, we're getting what we're paying for. We're getting what the system, you know, you, you, you get what you incentivize. And so it's kind of like, maybe we're getting what we're incentivizing. It's, it's, I think it's a lot of ways to look at the conversation. Um, ultimately we want to have a conversation so that the thing can change and not we, you know, we talk three years now about how it's like, you know, $3,000 for that doctor's visit or whatever, instead of, Oh yeah. Know, yeah. Well, you never know too with uh, with inflation how things are going. I mean, it's a, it's an ever changing environment, and like, I mean, the last thing that I would want to deal with is being dependent. I think the whole model of being like this sort of helpless victim patient needs to change. And I, and I really like your point about taking responsibility. That that's what really comes up for me is you know you have to be a player in the game when you are a player. Uh, you've got coaches, obviously, that are, that are helping you. You've got, you know, a physical therapist. You've got a whole team around you that's helping you perform. But ultimately, you're still dribbling the ball. You're still making shots. You're still on yeah. the court. And it's my, it's been my approach, you know, with uh, with health. And this is what I talk about a lot too. Is that ultimately, like, you, it's not about being a, a an expert necessarily, or you know, whatever, being you know, a doctor uh, of your own life. But really, I think everybody should have at least a baseline understanding of, you know, how to eat properly, how to take care of their bodies. What are some of the things that irritate them? What are things that they shouldn't do? You know, that way, basically, when you go to a, a doctor, even the best doctors, I'm sure you can relate to this, you know, you have a clinic to run, you got a practice to run. And it's like, in, in an ideal world, yeah, you'd love to be able to spend as much time as possible with everybody. But you know, sometimes that doesn't happen, obviously. And so, um, you know, you have as a patient, I think the mentality has to change from being this sort of passive passenger on a train to, all right, I'm, I'm an active player. And when I go sit down to the doctor and say, here's my data, here's my testing data. Here's, you know, everything that I take, like, here's what I think it is. Like you're able to have a conversation, you know, an intentional conversation, you know? So I think everybody should be able to do that to some degree. And you'll see a lot, you know, I think I read some statistic actually, <laughs> I just thought about this, but, and uh, I'm sure you probably know a lot of about this stuff, but there were, talking about how even if people took probiotics regularly, it would save something like, you know, I don't know how many billions of dollars a year in, you know, the medical industry or, or healthcare industry just because of digestive issues. So yeah, the, the statistics I use, I think, you know, everybody can relate with, you know, I'm not familiar with that stat. Um, that is an interesting one, but um, that is from the University of Florida. Half of all chronic disease in our country can be directly attributed to eating processed foods. So wow. half, of, half of all chronic disease could potentially go away. And then from Walter Willett, the Harvard School of Public Health, and he's, you know, some say he's the top epidemiologist in the country, that 80% of heart disease and 70% of cancer can be prevented by diet and lifestyle alone. 
So all of a sudden, half of everything, half of all chronic disease, 80% of the number one killer and 70% of the number two, soon to be number one killer, is all the individual. And that's one of the things, one of the things I think they functional medicine, lifestyle medicine, biologic medicine, I mean, whatever you want to call it, depending on you know, holistic medicine, integrative medicine, is it focuses on these things, like actually most disease is preventable. You're going to die from something, but if you can make the la- you know, your life more healthy, more successful, you keep your vibrance, you keep your energy, you don't spend the last 10 years dealing with chronic health issues. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, you, you can't put a dollar sign on that. And the reality is it's not um, that expensive. It just requires individual taking charge of their health. And I think where it gets difficult is because of the imbalance with food costs and with, you know, the subsidies on um, processed foods being so cheap, people look at and say, well, that, you know, eating real food's expensive. And it's like, well, it's not government subsidized. So, you know, I think one thing people forget is that the farm bill, you know, with anything that relates with corn and wheat and soy has a massive, you know, 500 billion plus subsidy every year. And that means all the chickens, all the the cows, you know, um, if you remember taxageddon, it was um, one of the years during um, President Obama's presidency, and um, there was a debate back and forth, and they're saying, oh, you know, this farm bill's not going to go through, you know, eggs are going to be $6 a dozen, milk's going to be 8 to $10 a, a gallon, and I was like, wait a second, that's what I'm paying now, and the light yeah. bulb went off is that the difference is that the, the food's being subsidized by the federal government. And once you realize that's the reason why these things are so cheap, maybe the conversation needs to be, you know, do you want to eat government subsidized food or real food? You know? Um, so it's just, it's hard. You know, we just, I think educating people, letting them know what the, the underlying issues are and like letting people make their decisions and their choices for themselves. You know, one of the things that my wife and I talk about all the time is medical freedom, you know, medical choice, you know, the ability to make your own decisions, but people have to be educated enough to have the tools so they can make good decisions for themselves. That's true. Yeah. No, it's so true. And it is because ultimately, uh, I think health is one of these things that there's so many considerations, especially now. I mean, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's a double-edged blade with everything. You know, the more complexity, we have a lot more things we can do for our health nowadays, but we also have a lot more uh, assaults, you know, on our health. I remember I would go out to, uh, I was born in Romania and I would go back there in the summers as a kid. And, you know, we would go and whatever I would eat, you know, some chicken, uh, you know, eggs, chicken, whatever, you know, uh, bacon, <laughs> whatever it was, but it was all straight from the farm, you know? And it was, I mean, I remember those eggs were like literally freaking almost red inside and they were just delicious. And I'll never forget the taste of those eggs. And, uh, people there were healthy, you know, they didn't, they had a very simple life. Obviously they had a simple life. They would just work all day and on the farm. And, you know, it was a simple life. Obviously that's not the case if you live in the city, uh, in the United States. And there's a lot more, um, I would say assaults, you know, like you look at 5g, whatever your idea about that is, you look at toxins, you look at all these different things that are happening that weren't there before plastics, xenoestrogens, you know, personal care products, uh, heavy metals. I mean, you can't be passive in my book. If you're passive, you're sinking in the pit of quicksand uh, by default, you know, so you have to, <laughs> you have to take control of the whirlwind that, that you're in by default and be able to navigate through it with intentional decisions. Well, I think, you know, what you're kind of alluding to, you know, you know, back in 1900, your lifetime risk of getting cancer was one in a hundred. Mm. 1990 was one in three. Now one in two people will get cancer in their lifetime. And you have to wow. ask yourself, like, what's going on with that? If you look at um, the, BRCA, the BRCA1, BRCA2, the, the breast cancer gene, 
In the 1950s, your risk of getting breast cancer with that gene was 20%. Now it's 80%. Wow. So it's fourfold increase with the gene. You know, um, if you had the gene for celiac disease in the 1950s, your risk has increased 400% since then of getting celiac disease. If you look at diabetes, when in 19, um, 1980, there were no cases of type 2 diabetes in the pediatric literature. In 1996, when I was in my start of medical school, our professors told me I'd never see a kid with type 2 diabetes. If I saw a kid with diabetes, it had to be type 1. You yeah. know, diagnosed my first case of type 2 in 2001, and now we're expecting about a quarter of kids to have diabetes in general. And it's just wow. kind of like, and that like, and, so and, and we can talk about, you know, xen, you know people, oh, xenomestrin is a bunch of hooey or whatever, or chemicals is a bunch of hooey. And you can argue those nuances, but you can't argue these statistics. So my question is, is why are these diseases on the rise? You know, autoimmune diseases, um, and I was in medical school were uncommon. Now one, um, one in 12 people has some kind of autoimmune disease. Yeah. So, and if you look at all the autoimmune diseases together as a whole, um, more people have autoimmune diseases than have cardiovascular disease. So it's just kind of like, you know, what's, what's kind of going on. And that's where I think, then you say, well, there's environmental chemicals, you know, and, and the biggest source of these is actually our food. Yeah. I mean, this processed foods, you know, you can talk about you know, avoiding a lot of stuff, but if you just eat real food, you're going to avoid the vast majority of chemicals and toxins. If you, if you breathe clean air, which means, you know, HEPA filters and, you know, I like the, your beach background in the, in the, in, on this video, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah it's some clean air. It's really, I have a lot of patients with chronic health issues here in yeah. Richmond. They go to the beach, they feel so much better. And one of the things I've found out is the amount of things called endotoxins, which are bacteria cell wall toxins that are in marshy, moldy, wet places. And then Richmond's a big swamp, you know? And so I have a lot of patients that go to the beach and feel better. So it's realizing your environment makes a difference. Your food makes a difference, you know? And I think these are the things that I was taught and I was taught to what you eat didn't matter in medical school and no one ever talked about the environment. And these are things I think that everybody has a certain degree of um, autonomy and control over and just educating people about these things um, and then that, they make their, their, their personal decisions. You know, it's funny. I used to, when I was a kid, uh, again, we, when we went back to Romania, they had um, one of the things you can do there. It's like a big, uh, whatever, like attraction, like a tourism thing. But even, I mean, obviously the people go there too, are these salt mines, you can go down deep into the earth and literally the walls are just made of salt. I mean, they're like smooth and, you know, marbly kind of salt and they just set up tables there and people just sit <laughs> and breathe in the air because the salt uh, somehow, whatever, you know, must purify something. And so I remember every time, like you said, I've been to those places or even obviously the beach is full of salt water and, you know, salty air. I always felt better. I always felt my nose. I mean, I don't have too many nose issues now, but as a kid, I used to have a lot of uh, runny nose, no allergies, just kind of probably inflammation, who knows what it was, but uh, it would always feel better with the salt. So just so interesting how these simple things, you know, now it's like, oh, you know, take a spray with this chemical and put it in there and it's a steroid. And you know, just, it's just, I don't know. It's so it's like using a bazooka to, uh, you know, I don't know, to, to blow a fly off the wall or something. So okay. You know, unfortunately, one of the things with our culture is convenience is the most important thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, my one of my mentoring physicians that actually I joined his practice. I'm at now. I joined his practice. Um, you know, he, he started back in the '70s. Was he was like, you know, convenience, compassion, um, and um, clarity. He's like, you know, patients. That's what patients value. And so, if you're not, if you don't make things easy for them, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, mm. They have to feel like you're listening to them. Um, you have to be clear with what you say, and it's just kind of like. You know, that convenience part, though, I think has kind of risen to the top. 
And now it's like, you know, people, if they have to wait, you know, you know, four to six weeks to see me, they'll be like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm gonna see someone else. And it's like, yeah. that convenience is such a huge, huge thing. And so um, it, it goes into education, it goes into food, it goes into, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, hard things are hard for a reason. Yeah. I'm curious as a doctor, especially, you know, with, with your background and very diverse background. And now that you're obviously more in the functional perspective, you know, I mean, one thing, and again, I'm sure you can relate to this, but you know, one thing that I've realized with health is that ultimately it's, it's about a practice, you know, so you can do all kinds of different things, but at the end of the day, it's really, what is the choreography that you do every day? And what are the habits that you build? How do you um, you know, structure your day and do these things on a daily basis to maintain the outcome of health. Health is not a destination that you hit and then you, and you're done. It's, it's, it's a practice. And so, um, how do you, how do you help somebody do that? Especially somebody coming in from, let's say the, the currently broken system, that's very, you know, patch oriented, you know, prescription oriented. And then it's like, okay, just take this and you'll feel better rather than educating somebody. It's like, look, you know, if you really want good mental health, you want good physical health, you got to start with, you know, your diet, what are you eating? You know, your management stress, your habits, all these things. You have to understand that this is a practice. So how do you, uh, with the time that you see people, how do you teach them that? How do you encourage them to, to build a life's practice? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier in my functional practice because I have two hours to do an intake versus the 12 minutes in, a, in my yeah. primary care practice. But um, you know, I, I learn about them and I learn about what their major leverage points are. In the functional medicine paradigm, we look at these foundational things, you know, diet, stress reduction, sleep, exercise and movement and relationships. And so the question is, which one of those major, which one of those five critical things um, either needs the most work or you're the most likely to change? Because, you know, sometimes the thing that needs the most work is not the thing the person is most likely mm, to change. Right. And so if you know, sleep is one of those things you think would be, you know, um, non-negotiable for a lot of people. It's like, I just don't have time to sleep. And it's like, well, okay, well, <laughs> come back around to that. Let's start on diet. Well, I don't have time though. I'm too fat. Okay. Um, how about exercise? Well, I can walk up the stairs at work. Okay. Let's start at exercise, right? Yeah. Let's, let's, you know, get a Fitbit and measure your walk and just bump it up a little bit and park a little further. And, you know, every hour get up and walk around the room once, you know, simple things, you know, and you just, find out where people are most likely to move and just kind of empower them in that way. But that's where it's, that's just education. You know, I remember one statistics some early in my career that you have to ask the average smoker seven times uh, before they'll attempt to quit once. Wow. Really? Yeah. And so it's kind of like the expectation, you know, I'm going to tell someone to eat right and exercise and just magically going to happen. <laughs> it's not going to magically happen. It just takes, yeah. you know, um, understanding on my side, persistence, and then um, people being open to, you know, I always, and just me saying the way with my smokers would be like, Hey, you know, you're still smoking. They're like, Oh yeah, doc, you know, you're killing yourself. Yeah, I know. Okay, cool. Let's move <laughs> on from there. You know, and I'm, um, you know, just doing it, say, do it in a way. And there's some patients you have to be like, Hey, look, you're, this is your fifth hospitalization in the last three months. You're, you gotta stop. And some patients it's like, you know what, you just know they're not ready for the, you know, the come to Jesus, so to speak conversations yeah. so you have to be like, okay, let's, and that's just, that's just knowing people and interacting with people and knowing where they're at and kind of reading off their cues um, and not, not pushing when you shouldn't push, you know, and that's, that's part of the, the art of medicine. I was reading, because uh, the last book I wrote, I, one of the chapters I had was actually on the um, placebo effect and, you know, all the research has been done. It's actually really fascinating stuff. And I, I remember one of the 
things that I had highlighted was that the placebo effect was very much um, one of the things it depended on very much. So was the perception of you know, the relationship between the, the provider and, you know, the, the patient. And so if you had a good relationship with your doctor, you were more likely if there was going to be a situation for placebo to, to experience those benefits. So it's interesting how, um, you know, these simple things where, again, like you said, compassion, having that, that care, that Hippocratic oath and really, uh, caring for people, how that in and of itself, you know, even if, or whatever, if there's a placebo, I mean, it's a very effective, uh, you know, we still don't understand how it works or why it works, but it's just so interesting that that can make an impact, you know, just that sense of, okay, I feel like somebody's listening to me, that they're supporting me and that I have a sense of purpose. I have somebody guiding me. It's, it's so interesting. I mean, there's, there's a placebo effect and a nocebo effect, you know, yeah. <laughs> two spots, yeah. and so it's, you know, the mind-body connection is incredibly, incredibly powerful. You know, you can have yeah. someone get their arm blown off in Vietnam and have phantom limb pain. They still feel that arm 20 years later. That's so crazy to me. It's not there, you know. Yeah. Well, you're, it's interesting how that mind-body connection is so powerful. And you know, monks, you know, and Tibetan monks can meditate and in the cold and ice and actually heat their body up, melt the snow yep. around just by breathing and meditation. You're like, they can change the physiology that much. And so the um, placebo effect is real. Like if you take a sugar pill and, it, and, you, and you're depressed and you have anxiety, 60% of the time people show improvement based on these, these depression anxiety scores. If you give them an SSRI, which is a drug to treat, that's 68% of the time they get better, right? Wow. percent difference is statistically significant, hence we have these medications. Um, but the absolute difference is actually not that huge. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, well, does a medication actually work? I'm like, well, it works, but your mind works better. Your perspective, mm -hmm. your outlook, you know, it's interesting, um, the literature behind, you know, people having a heart attack and association with depression. Um, it's, you know, everybody knows the, you know, in, in the cancer world, someone gets diagnosed with cancer and they ask, well, how long, do I have, how long have I got doc? And the answer usually is like the perspective of the patient. Yeah. So I've seen patients that were had three to four months last five years and patients I thought would have had at least a year or two last, you know, a week um, wow. because of the way they took the diagnosis and their perspective on life. And so, you know, people minimize routinely, they minimize the placebo effect, but it's, it's so powerful that in the United States would require um, placebo arms and trials to verify that the drug actually works better. That's how good placebo works. It's so interesting. I, I interviewed a, a guy named um, Dr. Dawson Church on my show a while ago. I think it was about a year and a half ago. He wrote this book, uh, Mind Over Matter, and basically summarized all his different research on on this kind of stuff, placebo, but also like healing, you know, like, um, you know, healers and, you know, all kinds of really interesting experiments that they they did basically long distance experiments that showed basically, I mean, it sounds crazy, but you know, it really is a testament to there is a power of the mind that is often ignored. I think probably all the time ignored really by the, by the modern system. I don't think functional medicine uh, ignores the mind, but by the modern system, it seems that we ignore this uh, very important aspect to healing. So I'm curious what your take is on, you know, when, when somebody's, coming to you for a situation, let's say it's, you know, some gut issue or whatever that's common, obviously. I often find that there's a emotional, there's always an emotional component. You know what I mean? Like there's always some sort of spiritual emotional component that is tied to that physical problem manifesting. And I always, it's so interesting that they always, there's always a relationship I've found 
in my own experience and, uh, you know, just what I've seen. So I'm curious in your experience, how you've seen that play out. I mean, you know, in the functional medicine paradigm, you, the mind body connection is at the center of one of the big wheels with symptoms and your know, detox and inflammation and immune system yeah. stuff at the center of that is actually the mind body connection. Um, you know, it's, it's incredibly powerful, you know, per, someone's response to trauma, to injury, to the situation in life determines how they respond to it in so many ways. And ultimately you are your mind. You know, if I cut your arms off, you're still you. If I give you a liver transplant or a heart transplant, you're still who you are, right? What makes you you is not your body, it's not your heart, it's not your limbs, it's not your gut. It's actually the mind. And we don't really quite even know what the mind is right now. You know, mm. there's this interesting understandings of how like the brain works, but actually it, it's almost like I saw this one graphic and it was um, a researcher at MIT talking about the, the way the mind works and the way you describe it. It's like, we think about, I think about an action in my front of my brain and then the thought goes back to my midbrain. It coordinates with my cerebellum, goes down my spine and I move. And he's like, it doesn't work like that. Like all these different places in your brain are firing at the exact same. It's almost like having an ether or a cloud over your brain of activity. And that's the actual function that goes behind a movement. And it can, it's so fluid, we can't actually map it. So wow. we, just, we just do a superficial view and think we know what's going on. But it's, we have really ultimately have no idea what the mind is. It's more, it's more than the sum of the parts. Yeah. And that's where it's just like, okay, we got this thing. We have no idea what it is. It's more than some of its parts. Let's just ignore the whole thing when we take care of gut issues and heart <laughs> issues. And, you know, and it's like, you know what? And it's interesting how other non-Western health, health traditions, it, that was the center of their, of, their, what, of their combined wisdom of these cultures for thousands of years. And it's now, we're just now understanding, you know, um, George Washington, you can get a, a master's and a PhD in mind-body medicine now. Wow, you know? really? Yeah, so it's actually catching on here. It's catching on here in the United States, you know. Um, and people forget all of our research studies require a placebo arm. Why? Because of the power of the mind, the power of perception. And so, you know, that's where I think you know, your outlook on life, you know, your outlook on illness, health, um, and that's where social supports come in as well. It's, you know, are you familiar with blue zones? Have you ever heard the term blue zones before? Yeah. 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 And, it, and they, what's the magic of these places where, you know, people live to be a hundred more than anywhere else in the world. And it's like, they're very rural. They don't have access to healthcare, um, but they have community, they have family, they have social support, yeah. they have real food and they have meaningful work. And it's like, and their diets are radically different. The environments are radically different. Um, but there's some magic sauce in those places that the, at these blue zones, whether it's, you know, Loma Linda, California and the Coria, Costa Rica or Okinawa or wherever, you know, Okarios and the Greek islands that people live in to be hundred years and happy and still vibrant, you know, in their eighties and nineties, you know, and it's not because they have magic medications. It's because they have this community, they have family, they have real food, they, they have a connection with their environment. And that's where I think, you know, letting people know about that kind of stuff, which seems kind of woo woo, but it's like, well, I mean, people are living healthy. That's the, yeah, that's the way we were evolved to live. I mean, uh, that reminds me of, well, two things, actually. I don't know if you've read the book by Walter Longo. It's called uh, The Longevity Diet. Yeah. Yeah, he talks about blue zones and his whole experience with fasting and stuff. But I think he also mentions uh, in Philadelphia, I think in the 1950s, I, I don't remember the exact time, but it was sometime you know, in the last century where had this small community called Rosetto and you had a bunch of these immigrants. Uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with it from Italy, I, I believe. And 
for a while, this small little, you know, cluster of people had like the lowest incidence of heart disease compared to everybody else. Even though they were factory workers, they're eating, you know, salami, they were doing all this crap. And, um, you know, it was interesting because to your point about having that community and having that sort of bond and happiness and probably lower stress, I'm guessing, because they had social interaction, uh, they, they had lower incidence of heart disease. And then the moment that they sort of became more, quote unquote, westernized people, you know, the new generation grew up, they moved out, they became, you know, more whatever, integrated <laughs> uh, with the rest of the world, that heart disease rate went up, you know, back to match whatever the surrounding areas. So that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that was, there's, there's that, there's also, you know, one of the things Walter Longo, um, with um, fasting, mimicking diet, fasting, that's, yeah. you know, that's, it's its own superfood, so to speak. It's amazing. All the yeah. data out there and obviously Dr. Longo, he's got a lot of research and, you know, Perlon's one of the things he's put together and he's um, well-researched in this area, but like the idea of like, giving your body a rest for 16 hours a day, doing, you know, fasting, mimicking diets or water fast, which was a normal part of, you know, most people's life experience, you know, a couple hundred years ago, it actually makes your mitochondria work better, which are the powerhouse of your cells. It actually helps your brain detoxify better. Um, it actually, all these, all these new cool anti-aging things, you know, <laughs> exercise and fasting actually does all that stuff. So we're trying to make medications and peptides and new drugs and, yeah. you know, cretins and all this kind of stuff and GLP ones. And, you know, I, I can list a whole bunch of these things and they're basically mimicking what exercise and fasting do. And so it's kind of, why don't we just exercise and fast? Well, the other problem too, I mean, I'm, I'm into all that stuff too, not to the sense that I uh, necessarily believe that that should be where a person should start first. I think, you know, I'm definitely in alignment with you in the sense that I, I believe start with the basics, start with what you eat, start with exercise, you know, incorporate some fasting, maybe intermittent fasting into your diet. I mean, start with the basics, you know, and then work your way up because the fancy stuff, I mean, we don't even really know, like some of these things, um, you know, like uh, spermidine or something like that, where basically you're taking it and it's, you know, giving you basically the same effect as fasting. I, I'm wary about that because ultimately there's no longitudinal data on what does it mean? You know, there's so many fucking pathways in the body. There's so many complex chains where it's like the body, you know, like when you fast, like actually fast when you're not eating, <laughs> uh, there's just, there's just certain things that happen other than the not eating and you know, the body's used to that. But then let's say you're, you know, you're eating and you're lifting weights and you're doing all these different things. Then you're taking stuff to, to stress your body in a different way. Tell it, no, 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 go back to fasting mode. Nope. I want you to go to growth mode. I don't know. It just, to me, it seems like certain things where you are getting into pathways in the body, like, uh, you know, the different fasting and growth pathways and stuff. And you're playing around with those, the higher up you go on the chain, I feel like the more room you have to really, you know, be kind of, you know, I don't know, <laughs> mess things up, I guess, but not to discourage anybody from experimentation, but, uh, you know, really start with your basics, I believe, and get into a good habit, get into a good mindful practice of life, have purpose in your life, have a good meal plan, have a good diet, you know, make good decisions around your stress. I think if you can get into a practice of all those things, then yeah, maybe, you know, if there's anything else missing, then sure, try some NAD supplements or something, but, you know, go go with the basics first. I mean, I think supplements by definition supplement. So what do they supplement? You know, if they're not supplementing a good foundation, you know, then yeah, exactly. Then are you really is your money really well spent on that? I mean, the best value for your your dollar is actually real real food. You know. Yeah. 
No, it's true. And I mean, uh, especially nowadays, I think people kind of get discouraged with when it comes to food with, they get discouraged to think it's real food's expensive, but you know, I don't know. You know, I, I think if you can live simply and, you know, if you go, for example, to the store, fruits and vegetables, you know, maybe some things are expensive, but you know, you get some rice, you get some potatoes, you get some, uh, you know, vegetable varieties, you get, you know, protein's expensive, obviously, you know, that's going to be, that's the tough part is getting high quality fats and proteins because those are expensive. But, you know, I don't know. I think you could make do. It just takes planning. I think that's the hard part. And a lot of people kind of shy away from that, especially now with our constantly busy lives, you know, with so much crap that we're doing. Um, I think people shy away from that. But I think if you can, if you can create a, a system, that's really what it comes down to is creating a system. Then you can you know, really utilize clean food. Like I eat pretty simply, man. I eat like, in the morning, I'll usually have some almonds that I soaked overnight with maybe a little fruit, you know, a scoop of whey powder. I'll have some, uh, anything that I eat, I have a lot of avocados, I have cucumbers, you know, I have vegetables all around. I can always cook something up. And so obviously that's my system, but anything I can eat, I can usually prepare it under 30 minutes. That's my rule. You know, yeah, and, I, think, and it, I think a lot of it comes to like also what we value. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I hated picking tomatoes and canning tomatoes. <laughs> I hated yeah doing green beans, you know, we like, we canned everything. We canned meat, we canned um, peaches. It was just like, we had a garden in the back, you know, then this, my dad was from West Virginia and grew up having the farm. And um, I just hated it and just was, but in retrospect, you know, it's because we couldn't afford food. Like I didn't realize yeah. the reason they went hunting and got some you know, venison and we turned it into hamburger and, and we, we preserved it. Sounds good. It. Yeah, actually, well, it's, yeah, we just, yeah, but the reason we did that wasn't because it was easy. It was because it didn't cost anything but time. And so in retrospect, a lot of the things, like all the clothes we had were from thrift stores and hand-me-downs, you know. Yeah. Um, I think when I was in eighth grade, it was the first time I bought my own, like a, it was an OP, you know, Ocean Pacific t-shirt, you know. Yeah, classic. Yeah, I know exactly right. But it was like, we didn't have the, the resources for it. So, you know, we improvised. And the question is like, you know, you know, I think what we're doing now, instead of like improvising, like what works for you where your family lives? And we were in the city. So we said, we had a small backyard. We just kind of, you know, it's amazing what you can do with stuff. But um, it's just one of those things where, you know, where can you improvise? Where can you, you know, make cut, I don't want to say cut corners, but where can you make make room in your life for for these things? And I think it just takes time. If, you're, if your life is all filled up with busyness and projects and going here and there, then there's not going to be any time for, 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 basic things. I think one of the things Americans forget as well until this is, this is a, this is a pre pandemic statistic, but I think Americans spend about 10% of their disposable income was spent on food versus the rest of the world. The average is about 40 to 50%. Wow. Really? Yeah. And so it's like, we're so used to cheap access to cheap food. Then people say, why don't you spend a little more? The, the answer is, well, I have to cut corners somewhere else. Mm. And it's like, well, what corner are you going to cut? Well, it's like, well, I can't get rid of my my smartphone. I can't get rid of cable. Yeah. You know, I, need, I need, need new seasonal clothes. And that's I get interesting. A new, I get a new car every three to four years. And so it's like, you know, um, you know, it's a, what, what do people value? And that's where I think, you know, healthy, it has to be something we value. It has to be something we value enough to, to compromise. And um, no, it's not compromise. We have to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have to value enough that we'll um, make it a priority and, and cut other corners, not, not what it takes us to, to be healthy. Yeah. Reprioritize. No, that's, that's so interesting. I, I didn't know that statistic, but I could see that, you know, especially, I mean, in Europe, I'm not going to relate to that because I mean, Europe, the standards for food in general are just so much higher and people have more discerning taste too. I was just talking about that with one of my friends actually the other day about steak. We were, 
um, you know, talking about steak, I don't know what we were talking, but I was saying, you know, Americans here in general have a much lower standard when it comes to steak. I mean, they'll, I have friends that will chew on fucking rubber with bar- barbecue sauce and they'll be happy. You know? <laughs> so, and it's just like, I mean, I'll eat a filet mignon, but you know, I, I'm not, uh, I'm very discerning. I'm not trying to sound snobby or anything. I just don't like low quality or chewing, you know, my meat. And I think that's a very reflective thing. I mean, Taco Bell is not even meat, but people still go and eat it. You know, it's just, I don't know that that would, that would survive in Japan or, you know, uh, some of these like France or something, maybe, I don't know. I haven't been to France in a while, but uh, it's a lot more discerning. People are a lot more discerning. I mean, when I wasn't, I, I, you know, I admit this, my high school job was working at McDonald's. I was a McDonald grill, a grill technician and a hamburger was a dollar. They got uh, robots now to replace that job. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't know. I haven't been in McDonald's in a while, but, um, but um, now that same hamburger is a dollar. And that was, that was what, that was 1990 to 91. So that was wow. a while ago. And so the, is it the same hamburgers it was back then? Probably not. Yeah. Um, so that's something else to think about, you know? I mean, I've heard some horror stories about McDonald's, but definitely, uh, I I don't think I've eaten a McDonald's. My dad ate a Big Mac there the other day. He told me, he's like, oh, you know, I just felt like going to McDonald's. I'm like, why would you, like, why would you eat a McDonald's? Don't eat a McDonald's. <laughs> you know, you don't know what's in that burger, man. I mean, I don't know what, what it's in there, but, uh, yeah, I've heard some horror stories with with chicken McNuggets and just like how they produce chicken McNuggets. You're like, oh God, I used to eat those things, especially in college. You know, you don't have very much discernment or time. And I just think back to some of the things I used to eat. I'm like, holy smokes, man, I would just be eating just garbage. And now in many ways, I feel like I'm healthier than I was, you know, when I was in my twenties. Just well, one of the big decisions. things with a lot of these foods is actually fat quality. And this is kind of one of my, one of my, yeah. bio, one of my biohack things these days is that people forget that every cell in your body is made out of fat, 40% yeah. um, saturated fat. Um, your omega threes and omega sixes, actually the cell walls actually vibrate. And if the cell walls are fluid or, or very, are very mobile, not plastic, but very mobile cell receptors work better. Hormones work better. And the structure for that is fat, healthy fat. You know, mm. and so when you eat partially plasticized fats, which is what hydrogenation is, you know, margarine is a liquid that's turned semi-solid, just like your computer in front of you is used to be petroleum in the ground at one, one point in time. And now we took it and we find it and we plasticized it and polymerized it. And it's hard now. That's what happens when these orals are partially preserved. And so when that gets in your body, it gets incorporated in your cells, your cells don't vibrate at the same frequency. It actually changes hormone structure, hormone function, wow. cell structure, cell function. And there's tons of data with, you know, with COVID, for example, some of the stuff I was looking at uh, four or five months ago with not having enough, the right ratios of the right kinds of mega-sixes makes it so that the virus can actually jump from cell to cell and increases your risk for certain infections. And so fats, you know, when people ask me like, what's a, what's a health trick I can do? What's, what's the most important thing I can change right now? And I'd say one of the major ones, you know, obviously sugar and stuff like that, but I'd say, you know, pick eat healthy fats, you know, find healthy, you know, extra virgin, um, premium olive oil, you know, get, um, you know, it's interesting. Costco carries, um, avocado oil from Mexico. Mm. It's what, and, and so basically if you get all, you get, um, avocado oil, make sure it's from Mexico because a lot of places actually adulterate and cut their, um, their, um, their avocado oil. Oh, wow. Get healthy butter and ghee, which is a saturated fat. You know, we, 40% of your cell walls are saturated fat, you know, um, like that's a huge, huge movement. And even like your liver detoxifying, your bile is your body detoxifying fat soluble 
things turning into water soluble and you put it out in bile. You need healthy fats. And that's where I see a lot of my patients who have health issues. I'll actually do testing on them, look at the ratios of fats in their cell walls. And I've had many, many patients have undetectable levels of um, amino levolinic acid, which is the, it's the foundational omega-3 that you get from um, seeds and nuts. And it's amazing how many people have these essential deficiencies because the fats we eat are mostly processed. So, you know, maybe a tip is just focus on cleaning up your fats. You know, I've, it's definitely been one of the things we've done in our family with our kids early on. Um, and it's helped my son a lot. He had a lot of asthma allergy issues early on. And um, we, we got, we adopted him. We got him, he was like six to eight months old. And um, it was amazing how much his skin cleared up over the period of a year or two when we changed his diet. And fats are su a super, super important part of that. I think they're as important as, you know, the whole sugar thing. Yeah, hundred percent on that. I mean, I actually, I remember reading a study about uh, related to the virus replication and stuff like that about oleic acid. There's some other fatty acids too, but I remember oleic acid being a really uh, big one in terms yeah. of making it harder for the virus or any, any, any virus of any kind to sort of jump from cell to cell. So it's just, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah oleic it's, acid is one of the, um, um, monounsaturated fatty acids. You have more of that in your, um, your olive oil and avocado oil. But one of the issues with oleic acid is that most of the corn oils have high oleic, you know, corn mm. oil halic. And what they do is they're processing and concentrating this processed omega, um, this oleic acid. And all of a sudden you're taking a good thing into a bad thing. And that's where, you know, just find, find these things as close to their natural form as possible, you know, like extra virgin olive oil, you know, there's so many, um, healthy polyphenols, which are the colors that actually feed. And one of the things you, I think you briefly mentioned is the gut bacteria, the microbiome. Yeah. One, of the, one of the powerful things about olive oil are these chemicals or the polyphenols that give it like the bitey, spicy flavor actually feed the bacteria in your gut. And so, you know, why, why do you need olive? Why is olive oil so helpful for your, your heart? Why does you know, eating olive oil lower your risk for heart disease, you know, 25 to 30%? Why is it eating adequate olive oil associated with lower risks of breast cancer and heart disease. You know, why is that? Because it's not an essential oil. We don't need it. Well, maybe it's these polyphenols, these plant chemicals and their impact on our gut microbiome and bacteria, which is anti-inflammatory. Now we realize inflammation is probably one of the, one of the root causes of most chronic illnesses and olive oil lowers inflammation by this thing. And that's where I think real food is so cool because it's so complex. Real yeah. food is much more complex than a single molecule. I think going back to what you're mentioning about spermidine is that there's, you know, cool. You can find these little biohack things like that, but there's, it's real food is much more complicated and more complex and does many more things than just the one or two or three or four things that these um, isolated molecules do. What's been your experience with the whole COVID thing in the last year and a half? And what, what have you learned? How have you helped people? What have you seen? What's, what's been that like? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a clinical researcher. My clinical research company is one of the, one of the top ones in the country actually um, researching the, 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 the Pfizer vaccine. Oh, wow. So I've got that part of my, in my research hat. But also, you know, I'm seeing long, people with long COVID now. I'm not sure if you've heard of long COVID. Yeah, um, it's like a prolonged symptoms and they're just yeah, not well, getting out of it, basically. Well, well, the data is between 10 up to 30% of people who got COVID will get long COVID. And so I'm seeing those patients. And so, you know, our clinic never closed down. <clears throat> as, a, as a small business owner, as a previously military guy and a, and a physician, it's kind of like, I felt like we trained for that moment like this. And so we, our goals were to stay open during COVID and to take care of our employees, you know, keep people out of the hospital, keep people safe, take care of them, keep our employees employed. So we um, just decided to stay open. We were, we were considered 
um, essential personnel. So we had the, the um, luxury of staying open and we did. And it was interesting to see how to see people getting sick, to be on the front line, taking care of patients. And um, I think now we're dealing with a lot of residual stress and anxiety, you know, this post COVID PTSD, post COVID trauma, you know, I saw my first person who now is disabled from their PTSD from COVID, you know, it's just, I could talk about this for hours and hours because it's, an inter- <laughs> it's, there's so many different ways to talk about it. But I think one of the things that we've forgotten is you know, some of the initial data that I put out there on social media back in the beginning is 87% of people who die with COVID have low vitamin D levels. Mm, you know, yeah. um, if, if you're the elderly, 40% of the elderly have low zinc levels. And if your zinc is low and increases your risk of hospitalization, 40 to 50%. So it's like, okay, so are there things we can do that actually might lower your risk of severe COVID? And the answer is, yeah, yes. We now have tons of data on zinc and C and NAC and, you know, um, EVMS, Eastern Virginia Medical School, which is a, um, a university here in Virginia, um, <clears throat> actually developed a whole protocol early on. And um, they actually were using it in the hospital. They were giving patients IV vitamin C. They were giving patients melatonin and quercetin. They had great, great outcomes. And so I think the, the th- problem is that, you know, it's just getting the message out that there's other options to treat. You don't have to do one or the other. You don't have to stay bottled up at home. You don't have to, you know, wait and pray for the vaccine to come out. There's actually things you can do. It's just, I think, ultimately messaging. You know, we 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 got so riled up waiting for the, the um, vaccine that we didn't think there's other therapeutics. You know, and there's other nutritional things and diet things and you know, air quality. You know, one of the things that I, <clears throat> one of the research articles I came across and posted on social media last summer was, you know, some literature out of Europe showing air, air pollution, direct correlation with severity of COVID oh, and yeah. air pollution. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the ACE receptor, which is the receptor that the COVID binds to, you know, the, um, the spike protein binds to that, um, gets upregulated if you breathe a lot of smoke. Wow. So it's interesting The Wuhan province, Lombardy, uh, Italy, which is the big industrial. Yeah. They had some of the most pollution, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. New York city, you know? Yeah. Um, so all of a sudden it's like, wait a second. There are things you can do to minimize. And that was one of the struggles I kind of had was putting the information out there and get all the kickback I got. I did one. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, did, I did one blog. The blog post was on pollution, COVID and pollution. It was based on an article published from, it was either the New England Journal of Medicine or the BMJ, one of the two. And these are all obviously the top English, you know, the top medical journals in the English speaking world. And um, it, was, um, it was censored because of political speech because pollution was considered political speech. And so it's just one of those things that's like, you know, you realize you're kind of finding something that's kind of, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, and that, I think that's crazy. I think that's part of the chaos people with having the anxiety and the mixed messaging. It took us five months to figure out if masks work, you know, it took us, you know, how long was it before you realized you would get COVID by walking in the aisle at the grocery store? And I'm like, that's not the way viruses work, you know, it, like yeah. the way tuberculosis work, the way polio, the way these things work, you have to get a certain viral load to get infected. Yeah. Um, and I talked about briefly in some videos and stuff, but it just wasn't the, the message was you might get this, you might get that. And I'm like, well, I might win the lottery, but I don't live my life <laughs> as if I might win the lottery, you know, that'd Depends be how many lottery tickets you get. Right. <laughs> well, well, if I get that many lottery tickets, I don't need to win the lottery. So, right. No, it's, it's sad. I mean, uh, it, it is sad that all that censorship has happened. And I, I feel that there is definitely some skewed perspective out there when it comes to messaging. And unfortunately, I mean, even if, I, I'm, I don't really believe in vaccines, but you know, whatever it is, even if people, if there was some magical solution where you could inject yourself, which already that sounds really stupid to me, but let's say there was some magic solution where you could inject yourself. I mean, that whole 
idea, that mindset, it sort of washes away your own responsibility with your health. Like it's, again, it's outcome focused rather than practice focused, you know, like it's, it just comes back down to, okay, Oh, I'll just wait for this intervention and then I'm going to be good. Well, it's like, no, that's what not, that's what health is. Health is not about one thing that's, there you go, you do this or one supplement or one, you know, hack, you know, whether it's a vaccine, it's a supplement, it's a vitamin, it's ultimately about, okay, how do I build a practice of using different tools and, and testing and, and consultation with the right people and my own education? How do I build a practice of that? And I think that's where the mindset needs to change because then people, I won't, I don't think people would gravitate towards stupid things, you know, if, if their mindset was different, let's put it that way, you know? I think the whole thing with the, the vaccine stuff, it's just, it gets, it's a hard conversation to have because um, we have a lot of, you know, half of our country's diabetic or pre-diabetic, you know, yeah. half of Americans are overweight. We're not a healthy group of people, you yeah. know? And so it's like, how do you, when you have a public health crisis happen, how do you acutely address things? And I think one of the things from a public health perspective that, you know, I read a book, it was actually called the great flu. Um, it was basically about um, the influenza of, pandemic from 1918 to um, Spanish flu. Yes. Yes. Spanish flu from 1920. And it's really, um, really interesting because it was written in 2004 after um, SARS, right? Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. So it's kind of like, Hey, you know, I mean, it was, it was really interesting. It wasn't written anything close to the current one, but it was written after SARS cov one, you know, and like, Hey, maybe we should, but it was really interesting, like how things happened back then. And the, one of the things I got, actually got out of the book that was interesting was that because it was during world war one, um, um, no one wanted to talk about how bad it was. So all the yeah. media basically said, oh, it's great. We're all fine. There's no flu, da, da, da. And people were, saw people dying like crazy. Um, but Spain, which was not a part of World War I, they're a neutral, reported on it liberally. So that's where it got the name Spanish flu was because it was the only country actually reporting about it. Wow, um, interesting. Yeah, but it was interesting how the, the media um, basically suppressed any talk about it. Um, and so people didn't trust it because they, they saw things going on, right? And so was this time, it was really interesting to see some correlations because we almost did the exact opposite this time. And we reported every single solitary thing. And the result was people still kind of like left question the media. So it's like, you know, how do we find balance in all these conversations? How do we find balance with, you know, um, you know, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask. Why does that designate my political standing? You know, yeah. <laughs> I still, I still want by punching me in the face and I don't want people feeling anxious. So I'll just, right. you know. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it is sad that it's become a political issue. I mean, I think going back to your point about having that freedom to choose, uh, you know, to choose what to do with your health. I, I don't believe in mandated anything, you know, I, there's no, I mean, we can get into this whole rabbit hole, but I mean, there's no science to back up these, these ridiculous mass measures, especially when none of them are really regulated. I mean, uh, you know, I'm in Phoenix here and you see people, well, I go to the grocery store and you got, your N95s, you got your regular surgical masks, you got people putting their shirts over their nose, you got, <laughs> it's just like, you know, if you know anything about study design, then you realize just how stupid this is to think that, oh, okay, you know, that'll work. Like, where on earth do you get that idea? You know, so it's just, um, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. That's self-expression. That's fine. But, you know, I don't believe in mandating masks or vaccines or anything else of the sort. You know, I think everybody should have a choice as to what they do. You know, so I mean, medical freedom is one of, you know, we talk about freedom and right to choose and medical freedom has to be something we, you know, that's one of the debates with healthcare, you know, um, but I think, you know, ultimately we, we, when something happens like this, people want to contribute, people want to yeah. be, 
you know, that was amazing to see how many people just started making masks. Yeah. <laughs> because like they want to contribute, you know, people, you know, people want to contribute, they want to feel safe. And so I feel like, you know, there's some very basic human needs that, that people aren't talking about, like the need to contribute. I mean, ultimately, America, as Americans, we're really uh, very altruistic. You know, we're one of the more giving countries in the world. And when, uh, when something happens around the world, we tend to like rise up and go help people. And so when this yeah. was going on, it was amazing to see how many people just wanted to help. And so I think, you know, and want to be part of the solution and want to feel protected. And so, you know, I think that's where it gets hard, where, you, where those expressions get misinterpreted as, you know, you know, something more than just a part of who we are as, as humans wanting to um, be part of something bigger than ourselves, wanting to contribute and wanting to feel safe and protected. So I think, you know, that's to be part of the um, conversation as well, in my opinion. What do you see the future of health going? I mean, with everything that's happened, especially in the last year and a half, and now, you know, I have a lot of friends who are doctors and they're doing a lot more telemedicine. You know, there's a lot more, I think, education in general. People are starting to wake up to the system being broken, you know, and a lot of people are questioning a lot of different things. So I'm really curious what your take is from being on the medical side. Where, where do you see the future of medicine going? Yeah, there's so many ways to, to answer that. I'm, I'm also a small business owner. So I tend to yeah. think <laughs> with, yeah, on the business side, I'm one, I'm one of the dying breed of physicians that still work for themselves. And the problem is the reimbursement system is going the opposite direction of the science. So mm. people talk about, you know, um, standard of care, um, you know, um, um, science-based stuff, RTCs, you know, consensus. They're talking about a group of experts getting together, looking at the data, and getting consensus, which is the reason why the standard of care lags the data 15 to 20 years. That's a crazy statistic, you know, that the, the practice of medicine lags, lags scientific literature 15 to 20 years. Wow. That's from some research from Dr. Ioannis at the PLOS, which is the largest online medical journal in the world. And so it's one of those things where it's like, okay, I think what COVID taught everybody is science is fast and changing. Yeah. So, you know, how much has changed with the way we manage events and manage ICU patients and manage COVID patients and now post-COVID patients? You know, it's, we don't even have a code yet. There's not a code that can build insurance yet yeah. for, for post-COVID, right? And it's been around for over a year, right? For this post-acute sequel of COVID-19. So I think what it's, it's showing is that what's happening is that we're having this, the reimbursement system is going one way to value measures and cost controls and the science is going this way. And so we're seeing more functional medicine people pop up, more integrative people pop up, mm. more, more holistic ways of practicing medicine pop up. Um, we're seeing direct primary care pop up, more concierge doctors. And so we're seeing people's, we're seeing the actual application of data going one direction, but the, the organization, the reimbursement system is going in a different direction. So um, I'm not quite sure how things are going to pan out, but it, it seems like there's a divergence between the science, the actual science of what's going on and the actual um, industry of medicine. So um, you know, I'm not sure where it's going because there's so many players, so many players involved, and we just changed um, political parties at the, the White House, and we're not quite sure where that's going to change the direction. Um, I think medical freedom needs to be part of it. You know, allowing yeah. allowing doctors to be independent, allowing physicians. Ultimately, the person responsible for you when you come in, into their office is the physician, is the doctor. If you came to see me in my office, I'd be responsible to you. And so, you, if we can keep keep 
that level of, of integration and care and compassion as low as low hanging as possible. When you have an insurance company, you have someone else somewhere deciding how I take care of you. Mm. Or when you come to office, I have to check a box that I screen you for depression, check a box I asked you about your flu shot, check a box of demographics, check out all these boxes before I can actually start talking to you. Like that's that. And that's part of this whole, you know, this whole standard of care, quality-based metric stuff. Um, that's becoming more and more seated because payers want quality, but the science is going in a different direction. And that's where I think um, giving both patients and doctors the, the freedom to to follow their their um their um what they want to do. Basically, I've started my functional practice that way, and um to date, I've seen over a thousand patients in that clinic. You wow. Know? Um, you know, Congratulations. I've had, oh, thanks. I've, I've had another physician join me, you know, it's, um, with my social media, I've got, you know, um, you know, many, many people, thousands of people following it. And it's like, that's me following my, the data science, my research, my heart, my intellect. Um, we have to allow not only patients, but also providers to do that. You know, and that's where I think that needs to be part of the conversation and where, where medicine is going, I don't know, but as a, as a small business owner, I have to plan contingencies. <laughs> plan, yeah. you know, for what happens if the government says, you know, I can't do this anymore. What's my plan for that? What happens if everybody's deductible is $10,000? Insurance is now hazard insurance. It doesn't work anymore. What's my contingency for that? You know, um, so that's where I think, you know, just having a finger on the pulse. But the reality is no one knows where it's going because we're still, you know, we're towards the end of the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic. Now it's becoming endemic, which means it's mostly everywhere. So there's going to be the post-pandemic endemic phase and there's all this stuff. And ultimately no one knows what's going to happen. And um, a lot of it just depends also on um, our leaders. Like how do they respond to all these things? And that's where I think people being involved with the healthcare, you know, ultimately, you know, and having the freedom to, if you choose to see a physician who's not in healthcare and some insurance thing, why can't you see them, you know? So true, man. It's a, it's an interesting time to be alive. That's for sure. There's a lot of things changing. A lot of establishment that's been around for, you know, obviously the last century is, is crumbling and being restructured and I'm excited to see where it goes. You know, I, I've always, uh, I mean, not always, but for a good last 15 years or so I've been in the alternative scene and really tried to take care of myself as possible and kind of research and do that. So I'm very excited to see where it'll go. You know, especially yeah. for people that are new to that whole scene, especially, you know, obviously with the COVID that maybe forced people to look a little differently at their health and at their life. Uh, I'm excited to see where it's going to go. So cool. One more question for you, buddy. What are you most grateful for today? I'm grateful for a beautiful day at my house today. Um, getting outside, um, having the ability to crawl underneath my house and figure out where I have foundational issue problems. Um, you live in Virginia, right? I do. Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. So I'm just thankful for what I've been given. Um, I've been given so much. I've gotten to have so many opportunities, you know, um, it's, it's amazing. If you're in America, I mean, I know there's a lot of debate on stuff, but if you're here, you know, we, we, were, I don't know, we were talking about Columbia a little before, we have a young lady, Elizabeth from, from Columbia, you know, I don't think if you start recording quite yet, but just, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just thankful to be where I'm at, you know, I'm not sure where else I'd, I'd want to be, you know. All right, everybody. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with my friend, Dr. Aaron Hartman. You know, health, like I said, is the currency to life. It is so critical 
because without good health, uh, a lot of other things are not possible. Practically nothing is possible, I feel. You know, to really enjoy life, you have to have good health. This is why it's been such a big part of my life, um, you know, with the show, with, with the blog, the Hacker blog. Every week we have a health article. You know, I've tried to get a lot of great professionals on the show, like Dr. Aaron, to share their expertise and to inspire you, to teach you, to give you some tools to really take proactive care of your health because your health is everything. When your health goes south, you know, uh, pretty much nothing else matters, right? And so this is why it's so important. If you want to get that free gift, the Be Resilient Guide that Dr. Aaron put together, make sure you go to the show notes for this episode. Again, it's episode 259, danceoflife.com slash podcast. That's where you can access everything and I'll post it there. Let's not forget our nice quote from the beginning by John Moore. Tug at a single thread in nature and you will find it connected to the rest of the universe. I love, love, love this quote for today because everything is related to everything. You know, this is the principle behind functional medicine. And I believe how you should approach your own journey with health. Now, that doesn't mean go become a functional medicine doctor, but you really should be a player in the game and you really should understand that everything is related to everything. This is just a fundamental skill, I think, that everybody should have, which is this understanding of relationships. And if I do this, what is this going to happen? If I, you know, put this in my body, what's that going to do to this part of my body? Having that general understanding and really taking the time to understand your body, to, to see the relationships between the things that you're doing and the outcomes. This is just the basic skill of life. And so that's why I love this quote. It's a great, great reminder. You tug at a single thread in nature and you will find that is connected to the rest of the universe. So true. Thanks so much for listening. As always, so happy to have you here on Fridays. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Hope you learned something and hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you on Tuesday for a little Transformation Tuesday. Don't forget, your life is a dance. So go out there and dance it well. For more inspiration, free resources, and bonus content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.